I met today's guest when I was a kid and I walked into his music store. His charming personality and absurdist sense of humor was immediate. Through the years, he's been like an older brother, a crazy uncle, and at times with his sage wisdom, like a father. We talk about his brush with fame and the ups and downs of being a professional musician for 40 plus years. Joel Ship, everyone. So, um, what year did Deacon Little start out? Deacon Little started out. Uh, Rick and I got together with Nathan. There, there was an earlier Deacon Little, not even worth mentioning. Um, Rick and Nathan and I got together, but Nathan was a constant in that band. He had left and come back, but once Rick got in the band, I think, I think that was during my first untimely divorce. Let's see. Uh, I think that was 78 or 77, somewhere in there. Okay. So you guys were together and then why was there a name change to Fort Knox? Okay. That's a, I was thinking about that a while ago. Let me explain something. Deacon little was the band that went in and, and played all over Atlanta. We started, we had been a copy band before that, but we just didn't sound good as a copy band when we played our own. Well, we sounded okay. We, we, we were just a nondescript copy band. But when we played our own music, magic happened. It was just a complete different deal. Even I, the great Brian Jobson said, you guys are crazy playing any cover stuff. You just need to do your own stuff. So we had built quite a, quite a large following with Deacon Little, though. And um, a guy named Steve Hannon was in Atlanta, was in Carrollton. And, and, I, we were, and we had worked up a really tight original show with Deacon Little and we were really hurting trying to find a place to play it. We were, we were actually playing some stuff like that, some gigs. He got us in the Agora and we exploded overnight in Atlanta. We just, we just took off like crazy immediately where our money started. We started getting gigs all over the place. It was the Agora ball. It was that one show at the Agora ballroom that got us going. Okay. Jump forward. CBS came out to see us at a place called Rumors, Epic CBS, and signed us that night. My mother was there, by the way. That, that signed you that um, night. Signed us that night. Who was the A and uh, Who was the A and R? Do you remember? Doreen O'Reilly. I don't know if Doreen's alive now or 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 still in the business. Her name was Doreen O'Reilly. I, I, I'd always say, really, O'Reilly. She'd laugh. I don't know why she thought that was funny. She thought it was funny. Anyway, she signed us that night. Uh, a pre-signed us, and then we had a signing party a few weeks later. Within a week after that, their A&R department, whatever, the powers that be, called and said, our guys that work here can't really see an advertising campaign with a name like they didn't like the Deacon little party. It sounded too Southern rock. And by that time, Southern rock was going away. And they said, would you be opposed to changing the name of the band? Well, I wasn't opposed and none of us were opposed. We were like, yeah, if you're going to, if you're going to push us then sign it. And, uh, I don't know who came up with the name. Somebody at CBS came up with four knocks. Yeah, but when once I saw what they were going to do with it, that uh, 
old English type dramatic thing. And then, although it didn't, it wasn't spelled like Fort Knox, Kentucky. It was, you know, F-O-R-T-N-O-X altogether. They decided to put a gold tinge on and they sent us that logo. And we said, hell yes, <laughs> that's incredible. So let me tell you something with within a month when what happened was we got we we cut a, a version of storm inside my head and it wound up on the home cooking album and then that was for and and by that time our name had been changed to fort knox and within a month after that we were three times bigger as fort knox than deacon little ever was so going back to okay they signed you the first night they signed us. They had come to. We had we had auditioned for a bunch of record companies in Manhattan, in New York. God, that was one of the most. When I walked out there on the stage, there were like ten record companies or fifteen record companies. Said now we we already had a buzz. People were talking about us. You had a buzz. A buzz. No, not a, a buzz. buzz. A buzz. <laughs> no, I was like, no. If, no, the, if you guys the, already the had buzz, a bus without without a record buzz label, came, no, hell, no. We didn't have a bus. We did get a bus later, though. Um, we played in in Manhattan at a place called Tracks, T R A X, I think it was. And there were about twenty rec, fifteen. I don't know how many record companies. And a lot of our friends. We had some friends in New York who were there, so they, they kind of backed us. They were out, but um. These guys were writing on paper while we were playing. I'm telling you, I was so nervous. I'd look up there and I'd look and I'd sing a song. And then I'd look and somebody would be writing notes. I was like, holy cow, this is horrible. But anyway, everybody passed except for CBS Epic. So, so now who, who said, who said, was this a, so was this a showcase? It was a showcase. Okay. Which I don't even know if they do showcases. Sure. Anymore. Well, I mean, I, to my knowledge, I don't even know do. if they do. I guess they do. Anyway, so we come back to Atlanta, and Doreen doesn't even, and and Doreen didn't want us to know she she was there. I think she could tell how nervous we were in in New York because it was just nerve wracking. This place wasn't very big, and everybody in it was uh, it, it was record company. It was all people. industry people. Yeah, man, it was just nerve wracking, and I I think we sounded okay, but I didn't think we sounded incredible. But the night that Doreen came out to see us at the rumors in Atlanta, we we didn't know she was there. We just we tore the house down, man. I mean, the place was packed. We went. And uh, she uh, we had added a few new songs. I think we'd added Beast in Me. Oh, Lucifer's Eyes was added, which is not about Lucifer. It's about a girl with Lucifer's eyes. Um, I, I think she was really impressed. So she said. She signed us to a little pre-deal, so we couldn't sign with anybody else. Yeah. And then about two weeks later, we signed, uh, I think we signed the real deal at, I don't know where we, I, we signed it in Atlanta at our recording studio. Well, that was my next question. Did you guys, did you guys actually sign it that night without having, yes, a, have, without having no, a, our manager, our manager had already seen it. Okay. Who was your manager at the time? A guy named Wynn Jackson. Lynn? Win, W. Okay. And and Win was okay. He 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 was he was a he was a record promoter. He had he had he had a lot of connections. I mean, Win standing on you know standing beside 
ZZ Top on this office. I mean, you know, typical typical record promoter. I don't even know if they have record promoters anymore, but at that time, Wynn was one of the top record promoters uh, on the uh, on the East Coast. Now, what year so, What year uh, was that that you guys signed? With Wynn? Was signed with... Uh, oh, with... I think it was 70... I think it was 80. I think it was early 80. Or It was late 79 or early 80. Did you guys immediately go into the studio and cut the record, or did you... No, nah, they, they didn't think we were ready. They wanted us to work a little bit, so we kept working and cutting, cutting demos, and they wanted a few more songs. Well, they thought they had a hit song with with "Storm Inside My Head," and you know they did have a hit song. It, it it jumped on the charts. And where where did that get to on the charts? It didn't get high enough. That was a problem. It got to, I, I, what happened was CBS released that song, and about the they released it at a, at a time when a lot of other groups were, were were releasing albums. And, you know, when you're, when you record stuff and, and release it and release it in the eighties, you're not competing with a band for a club gig anymore. You're competing with Tom Petty and Bruce Springsteen and people, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. You're not competing with some gig to play down at the VFW. You're competing with some of the best in the business or the best in the business. So, uh, but nonetheless, it, it jumped on the charts and started climbing. I think it got maybe – there were some charts where it went up higher than others. It, sure. It got, I mean, in some places it was like number four, but other places it was like number 50. I, you know you know how that deal worked back then. I'm, so they have you, out, have you out on the road before the record came out? Were you doing yes. dates, or were y'all in the studio? Right? Yes, we were working our butts off. What kind of draw? What kind of draw were you guys getting before? The we record? were doing all opening acts, so we weren't the draw. Gotcha. But, you, but we were getting good money. We were we the first. Let's see. We went we went out with Johnny Van Zant to start with. Uh, went out with the Outlaws, and they were sticking us with Southern rock bands, which I thought was a bad pairing. I didn't think that was, a, but we held our own with them. And then we did that whole Agora circuit where we might open for the Ramones one night and then open for Eric Burden the next night. It was just an odd thing. So, when we were in the South, though, we generally, when we were in the South, honestly, most of the time we were with Mother's Finest or the producers or somebody like that. So you say Agora Circuit. was So there were a string of clubs. There were more than one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When uh, The Agora had one in Cleveland, Cincinnati, I think Miami, and I don't think we played that one. And so basically uh, no, y'all we are, did. Y'all are local Texas, support. We went out of support on that, which I, which was which was good. But those those gigs don't pay a lot of money. Yeah. Now we then we jumped on a Rick Derringer tour, and you know it's odd. A few weeks ago, the and I don't remember his name, but the guy who wrote, I love rock and roll. He died a few weeks ago. You know he was the rhythm guitar player with Derringer on that tour. So you'll have to look up his name. I don't I don't know his name. He was a real nice guy, but he broke his arm in Denver. He broke his arm. They were walking back to the we were all staying at howard johnson's and uh one of derringer's roadies walked in and said hey man so-and-so broke his arm and he had to go home so derringer 
he didn't rehire anybody. He did the rest of that two or three piece. And it was, it was pretty good. I mean, yeah, we went over, we went over on all these gigs. We did uh, some Joan Jett shows and did a big Eric, couple of big Aerosmith shows. Um, you know, just, you're an opening act. You're, you're that band. Everybody goes to the bathroom. Yeah. But you know, but a lot of times we get encores and, 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 but they wouldn't let you do them. Yeah. You had, a, Oh, we did a tour with the lover boy, lover boy. Gotcha. Cause they were on, they were on Epic as well. They were on Sony or CBS. Yeah. But I don't think the being on the labels had anything to do with it. I think it was all through booking agents back then. We were, we were on the cusp of, of really doing it. We'd been out there long enough. So we didn't get sandbag on the opening acts anymore. In other words, we knew all the road crews. We'd get there. And, I mean, the first time you play for the open, the first time you're an opening at, they screw you every way they can. Sure. And if you take it and keep your mouth shut and not whine about it, you know, the second time they say, well, we'll give these guys a little more. And then finally they're saying, hey, we're going to give you guys everything tonight. And then before you know it, everybody's hanging out with one another. So we were out there long enough so we weren't getting screwed anymore on the opening act. We, we wouldn't get everything, but we'd get a lot of stuff. Get a, we, I mean, they wouldn't give you everything. I mean, every now and then you'll run a, into a band that's will say, hey, let the opening act have it all. We opened with Cheap Trick one time. They let us have the whole PA. They didn't shut any outs off or anything. So were they one of the, one of the nicer acts you guys worked with? Yeah, uh, Cheap Trick and George Thoroughgood. Um, John K. was Steppenwolf. Nice guy. Um I'm not, I'm not going to bring up the jerks. There's no point in doing that, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, let's just keep it positive, but there were some jerks out there, oh, oh, yeah. but it's mostly, it's mostly road crews. It's not, it's sometimes the bands don't even know what's going on. So I must say that every gig we ever did with mother's finest, everybody, we all knew everybody. So, you know, so th- those were good gigs. Mother's finest was a big influence on us on a live show. We, we, when we played with them, we had up our game up so when the record came out what kind of tour support did the label give you twenty one hundred dollars a week twenty one hundred dollars a week Let's yeah see. what would that that was in 1982 that's probably a lot of money back then let me see i'm gonna do the old uh adjusted for inflation uh, calculator so that was 1982 we had a little bus had a road crew oh you had a road crew we had a lot an LD and had uh, Don Jarvis as our road manager. Yeah. And most of those gigs were union gigs. And, and, and when you got there, the union guys would set your stuff up. $5,700 in today's dollars. Yeah. They, it lasted for a couple of months. It was pretty cool. So that, that took care of that you were with that money. You were supposed to take care of your hotel and your gas and your, yeah, but Boom. we we also made money. But you got to remember, we were an opening act. We opened for Aerosmith at Hampton's Road Coliseum one night, which was unbelievable. The place was packed. There was seventeen thousand people just packed. It was us, Johnny Van Zant, and Aerosmith. But anyway, we got five hundred dollars for that show. Yeah, I mean that's even at those days. Five hundred dollars a case of beer and a case of water. Yeah, that's about it. Yeah. How so, so? How did you guys do with merch sales? We never did. We never did get into it. We couldn't. We couldn't get that off the ground. And why is that? that? Was one, we were. We didn't. I, I, that's one place where I think our manager dropped the ball. I thought we should have already assigned a deal with a t-shirt company or something, 
we 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 never got that off the ground the way it should have been. That we dropped the ball on that. Had we done that now, if Fort Knox ever does any reunion things, I guarantee you we're not doing them unless we have T-shirts. We we really dropped the ball on that. I got to tell you, our manager dropped the ball. We lost a lot of money because we didn't have enough T-shirts. So, can you tell me the story? This is one of my favorite stories. You were out on the road with uh with Fort Knox, I believe, with yep. the, with the uh, the weather, the bad weather. Oh my God! You mean yeah? Well, we're going to play in Key West, Florida, and we were on the way down there, and unbeknownst to me, if that's even the real word, they had made a tape in the studio. Brian Jobson made it. He's by the way, he was God. God rest. God rest his soul. He was one of the smartest people. And he had, he had made a tape <laughs> that had every town on Florida that we would be passing by on this tape. Now, our, our, I want you to understand our van at that time, we were in a van. We, we did a little pickup gig in a van down in Key West and did have a radio in it. All we had was a, one of these, what do you call it? Boombox. Tape in. Yeah, yeah. So I didn't know what was going on in the back. Well, what was going on, and they had made this tape and put it in there, and it, and, and it highlighted every city through Florida on the way to Key West. And every city we got to, the weather was getting worse, according to this tape, that a hurricane was coming in from Cuba. And what made it great is it started pouring down rain on the way, so I thought it was a real... By the time we got down to Key West, I was like, I was screaming like, we got to turn around and go back. And then the guy started laughing. But anyway, Don Jarvis has the tape now. I didn't realize it had been gone for 40 years. But anyway, I thought it was really a hurricane coming. And everybody in the back of the van knew it was a joke. But I was beside myself. And when it started raining, that that really capped it off. But of course, there there was no hurricane. Brian just made it up on this tape. And what he'd do is he'd put the local stations on the tape, and he this is WA35. There's a terrible hurricane. It was just crazy, crazy. You'd have to hear the tape, but I'm telling you, it was the best practical joke I've ever heard. And it lasted for hours. That's what I was going to ask you. How long did this It go lasted on? like eight hours, nine hours. <laughs> by, the, by the end of the nine hours, I was like sucking my thumb over in the corner, <laughs> screaming, we're going to die. We're all going to die. Cause I'd already been across that seven mile bridge. I said, we can't cross a bridge during a hurricane. Naturally you'd hear Rick go, we got to, we got to have the money. I was like, oh shit, we're going to die. How did they keep so, it together for that long? I have no idea. I have no idea They we actually stopped once. And those guys had to get out at a truck stop and go outside and laugh. But they kept it. They kept it together for nine hours. I don't know how. To, I don't know how they did it. I couldn't have done it. Um, but they did. <laughs> how angry were you? Or were you? Were you more relieved or angry? Which I was so relieved when I found out there wasn't a hurricane <laughs> that I wasn't angry at all. I, almost, I probably cried with happiness. <laughs> I thought it was cool. Anyway, they called Brian from down there and told him his joke. I succeeded. He was really happy. I, I'm talking about Brian. I miss Brian every day. Brian Jobson, uh, what a great guy. So how so how long got, how long did you guys tour before uh, Epic eventually pulled the plug? Uh, about a year and a half. And by the time you a, go ahead, by the end of that year and a half, the record had come off the charts. 
and the money was just wasn't there anymore. There just there wasn't. Uh, they pulled the plug on the tour support, and we were about to go go in and cut a new new album. And uh, you know there was a little there was a little bit of a recession in two thousand eighty or eighty one, and Epic laid a lot of people off that worked in New York, and they 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 dumped a lot of bands. It wasn't only us. There were a lot of, also they spent a lot of money on Adamant, which they lost their rear end on. He didn't have a hit song at all over here off that album. And then, and then they, they made a lot of money on Michael Jackson. So they had put a lot of money into Michael Jackson, which I don't blame him. And he did make them some money, but so a lot of the bands that were on Epic that year got dumped because of a, some business decisions Epic made, and it's a business, and so we understood it. But uh, we we just couldn't get a, we couldn't get picked back up. Oh, so what was the best show on that? Out of that whole time of Fort Knox, what was one of your favorite shows or most mem- most memorable shows? I'm going to ask you. Sh- go ahead. The show with Aerosmith. We actually got an encore on that show. How about uh? So tell me about the Ramones show and your mom. The Ramones. <laughs> So we're playing with the Ramones in Atlanta and, and the Ramones, we, we, we opened that show was horrible because we had to come out twice. You had to come we out twice. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, they said, you're going to play 30 minutes. I thought, Oh God, 30 minutes. That'd be great. Or oh, you're going to play 30 minutes twice. <laughs> so the first 30 minutes, we went over great. The second 30 minutes, the crowd wasn't that happy to see us up there. But anyway, the Ramones come on stage and you know, they got this, they start their show. Well, they used to start their show. With hey ho, let's go hey ho, and so I asked mother later. I called her and I said, "How'd you like the show?" She said, "On the second hey ho, let's go." I got up and left. Those guys were awful. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't think mother was into punk rock, so I don't know. So, were there any other uh, local support bands or uh, that you guys played with who weren't big at the time, but then later became? Yeah, the satellites. We played with them a lot, and uh, they wound up getting really big. And of course, uh, you know, the producers came out of the box before we did. The producers were all uh, the producers came real close to being a a huge nationwide band. And you know, they still go out and play for big money right now. They uh, they really came out. They really came out of the box. Yeah, they did. I mean, they they got together. Bam. They had that record out and they were all over the place. So, and we did quite a few shows with them, even though our music wasn't exactly the same since, uh, I know we played it in Carrollton at West Georgia college and sold it out there when, and there were a lot of Fort Knox fans. We did a lot of shows with those guys, did a lot of shows with mother's fine. So you get dropped by Epic. We're done. Band. What happens with the band? Band tried for a couple of months to get another deal happening. And it's like Rick Fowler said back then when you got dropped and you were a small band, yeah, it was the kiss of death. We just, it was time to move on. But you guys kept, you guys kept rolling as the, the band intact for how long after that? Uh, about six months. And then we realized it was over. And at that point, did you come home and get a, get a real job? Did you have a real job during this whole time? Never did. Never. Never had a real job. So Fort Knox ends, and that's when you come back to this is this is around eighty three, eighty four, eighty two. Well, the record did. What, what year did the record come out? 
I think it came out 81. So, okay. So 82, you come back to, to Carrollton or you go back home to Dallas? No, I never went back home to Dallas. I came home to Carrollton. So you come home to Carrollton. You're still playing with Rick. I'm assuming y'all are still or, uh, to some degree, right? Yeah, we're playing when we started that band Bombay. Well, so Bombay starts. Now, Nathan uh, was not in Bombay. Already, no, he wasn't in Bombay. Yeah. He, he had already gone. He was living in, I think Nathan at that time was still living in Atlanta. And I believe, Nathan, you know, Nathan probably has worked more than any of us. Uh, Nathan, Nathan, I think, went to, he, he went, he, he joined a house band down on Stewart Avenue. Okay. Uh, in a country band and, uh, you know, and, and worked. He and I were talking about it a few months ago. Nathan's probably played more than anybody I know. He's, he, he played in that band for, I think it was like a six, nine a week gig for years. And years. I, I think he played with the country singer, Mark Wills in that band. I think Mark Wills was in that band. He was in, but Nathan did a bunch of house jobs did a lot of playing and he's a master carpenter. So, so at what point you know, did you start working at blues? I'd never worked at blues. Um, Neil, Neil got hurt and I bought Rick and I bought the store from him. Now it was all three of y'all correct or not? Well, Neil kind of came back in, but. And so what year was that, that you and Rick bought the store? I think 83, 83. Cause I was thinking around 84, is when I met, and then Rick Rick sold his part back back to Neil, and Neil came back in the store. Neil didn't like uh, Ricky didn't like the re- Rick thought it was cashing in the throwing in the towel, and I think looking back in retrospect, it was throwing in the towel. Uh, I'm glad about the store. Probably you and I wouldn't even be talking right now if I hadn't, because but um, I kind of threw in the towel at that time, and Rick didn't. Rick said I'm going to go out and play music, and that's what he did. So Bombay, so you basically, you started Bombay pretty soon right after Fort Knox. You yeah. Your- and we had a real lucky break on that because, uh, uh, Eddie offered heard a demo tape. We couldn't find a manager. And so, uh, uh, Russell Daniel had worked with Eddie offered. Eddie offered of, did he do something for yes? Yeah, he was Yes's producer and Emerson Lake and Palmer's producer and Dixie Dregs. He was he was really a he even worked with he was a I think he'd worked with John Lennon actually. He he was a legendary producer. He was in East Point and uh, he liked what he heard and he did a EP on us. Oh, so there's an EP. There's a Bombay EP. Yeah, that's an EP. It's not an album. It's an EP. Oh yeah, you're right. Okay, so anyway, about eighty four is probably when I met you. When I came into the yeah, store. yeah, you were just a kid. I, was, I would have been ten. I feel like I may have been a, but a little bit younger, but maybe not. Um. Anyway, so and now I think you were a little older. I definitely, I was definitely ten. Um. I just remember coming into this music store, and here's this curly-headed guy who looks like Gene Wilder, even though I didn't know who Gene Wilder was at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people thought I was Gene Wilder. I don't know why. I hope I don't look like Gene Wilder. Uh, and I remember buying a guitar. Well, I didn't buy the guitar. My mom bought the guitar. Um, and actually, I, well, I th- no, actually, I think I started taking piano first. So maybe we came for some sheet music first. But I remember that you guys were um, 
at the time were competing for MTV basement tape. We were back on, we, we had been on MTV with Fort Knox in regular, in light rotation. And so we had a few connections. So we managed to get our, get a video made by, uh, by the great Tim Dwelly, who also did the Fort Knox video. And, uh, we, 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 uh, got in some contest. I, I forgot the name of it. I forgot the name of the contest, oh, the, but anyway, the MTV contest. Yeah. It was the MTV basement tapes. basement tapes. And so they played our, our, uh, video against three other bands or two other bands. I don't know, maybe five other and our video won. So that band started getting, uh, some airplay on, but we lost the, the big round. But we won that. That you you I won the won like, you were a semi you were a semifinalist. Yeah, man, we won like ten thousand dollars worth of stuff. No, I remember. I remember staying up late to to make the phone calls. A yeah, I mean, I mean, it was in the Carrollton paper once again. Those those lads from Carrollton once again get on MTV. I, can you believe it? So how did that? But what did that do for <laughs> a bunch of country boys from M, from Carrollton, Georgia, wind up being on MTV twice? So what <laughs> did that do for the band, band uh, as far as recognition? We, uh, we had about six months of uh, where we were playing a whole lot, but without getting, we could not get that album picked up. We couldn't get it picked up. I, I don't. Uh, we came close to signing a deal with Sammy Hagar's manager, but that fell through. And I don't know. At, at this time, I was getting real bummed out. And uh, we finally, uh, that was another one of those bands that just went out of business because of lack of money. And I think I might have been, I don't know. We never had a breakup. I think we just quit. Uh, we, we got We got to the end of it and said, hey, this is, this is pointless. I mean, you know, and, uh, other things had happened per in my personal life by then. And it was just time to move on. And so I, I, you know, I, I, I read, <laughs> I didn't leave the business. I was still at the store, but I, I, I looked up Fort Knox last night on, <laughs> if you type in Fort Knox band on Google, you'll get a whole bunch of stuff. And there's always some weird stuff. It said, um, I typed up Fort, typed in Fort Knox band. And it said Fort Knox members, Joel Ship, Rick Fowler, and maybe before. And it said before and Fowler went on to play music. Ship left the music business and became a teacher. Well, that's not exactly true. <laughs> that was actually kind of prophetic, wasn't it? Because you didn't teach for another thirty years, right? Twenty years. After. Yeah, yeah, about yeah, about twenty-five years, something like that. So that wasn't exactly true. I did play music, but I threw in the towel trying to be a star. It was, it was, I'd had it. I just didn't see the point of it. If I wasn't going to make it with those bands, which is a coward's way out, I admit it. But uh, I I was just burnt completely out on going in, writing songs, which writing songs is hard as crap anyway, and uh, recording them and trying to get a deal. And by then, the music had changed. So I just started playing cover in local cover bands and wound up playing with the Watusi Rodeo years later. And we had a ball for 15 years, and I made a ton of money with those guys. So was I mean, so is the story – was I've heard this story before, but I can't recall if it was you – or someone else in the band. This is when uh, someone was riding down Maple Street, I believe, and they looked. At- That's me. 
<laughs> you mean the you mean the 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 sign when I saw the sign the right the writing on the wall of Bombay when I saw the yeah I was riding with my I was riding with my then stepdaughter Dana and I and Courtney was born uh, yeah Courtney had already been born and so Dana said no Courtney hadn't been born yet Dana said look Joel there's your album. I said, where Dana? She said, in the middle of the street. And I looked at it. <laughs> Our album was the Bombay album was lying in the middle of the road down there in front of where the old, uh, laundry is. I, and, uh, uh, Tracy Walker, uh, does, <laughs> does blankets down there. You know, the laundry where everybody gets their blankets. Yeah, I know. There was my album laying in the middle of the street and it laid there for months until there was nothing left. Of it. <laughs> you drive by and there, but finally there was like an inch left of the album. It was like, it's a, nobody even picked it up. It just laid in the street for like a month. I couldn't, yeah, that Dana, there's your album. That was hilarious. Anyway, I thought, well, that right there, that's, that's a sign. I need to get out of the business. There's some personal things that drove me out too, but I'm not going to bring them here, but, so you so so now you're full time store owner and it's just you because uh Rick had left by this time or is that or Rick had left and then I finally bought Neil out and then it was just me. But then when did Neil come back into the picture? I bought him out in eighty six or eighty seven. Eighty six or eighty seven. Yeah. I might be wrong on those dates. That's been a long time ago, man. <laughs> Well, the the music store for us was like the barber shop for a lot of people. That was oh, it was great. The place. I mean, I remember. I remember on Saturdays sometimes the place would be filled with people. What even and they weren't even musicians. Yeah, absolutely. Just for the, the st- people, just for the ambiance. <laughs> people telling stories and, and just for the insanity. I think it was just for the insanity because everybody there was crazy. And then we had Brian Jobson in the back doing the funniest stuff on earth. It's just an incredible, incredible time. So I'm glad it worked out. I mean, everything worked out. I, I, I mean, I've had a great run. I was, hey, I opened for Aerosmith and had a record and heard myself on the radio. And most people can't say they did that. That's right. So back to the hijinks at the store. <laughs> Kevin wanted me to get you to tell the uh, gorilla mask story. And I don't know that I know. So we've got this. So we've got this gorilla mask and I don't know who made it. But it looked exactly like a gorilla's head. I don't know who, I don't know where this thing came from. It was hideous, but we never had showed it to Kevin. We had it hid. So we had a little elevator shaft in the back, and I had one of my old SVT cabinets sitting in the corner of that elevator shaft. And so I think Neil was there then. Yeah, Neil was still there then. So I, I put the mask on, and this is at Christmas. So Neil holds up this thing and says, Kevin, go get number so-and-so, so-and-so of a layaway. Because we kept our layaways in the store in the old elevator shaft. Elevator didn't work anymore. But you had to turn a light on in there to see. It was pitch dark. I mean, it was completely dark. Well, when Kevin turns that light on, I jump out from behind this amp. And he doesn't run. He doesn't do anything. He faints. He just faints. He faints. He's backing out the door while he's fainting. He didn't scream, and I, he just sat down on the steps. I thought he'd had a heart attack. It scared me. I mean, I just jumped out like, ah! and he doesn't run or anything. He just faints. 
So he's just a kid, you know. It's, it was hilarious. I wish I had a picture of his face. It was just a look of shock. And he could, he was so scared he couldn't move. So anyway, we're laughing at him. I, I don't think he thought it was funny at the time. I think he started yelling at us. But anyway. He's learned to appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. I think he's learned to appreciate it now. But I think at the time it happened, he didn't appreciate it at all. Because I'm telling you, I thought he was going to – I mean, he literally fainted. He did – the only thing – he. He went down to his but his knees buckled and he backed out the door and his his eyes were rolling back in his head. <laughs> I wish I'd had a telephone. You know, we didn't have cell phones back then. But if I'd had it on, if I'd had that recorded, I could have. That would go a long way. Hey, speaking <laughs> of phones, can you remember the phone number to ships music? Um, eight three four two three eight one. Yep, you got it. Yeah, I remember. Hey, I still remember the phone number uh, at my dad's office. Really? Yeah, I think I do. Isn't yeah. it weird how things, certain things stick yeah, in your head? Our old phone number at home was 445-3498. Of course, that number's gone now. Yeah. And mom's gone now. You know, my mom passed away a few weeks yeah. ago. Wow. Well, so it's been a, so I remember being a kid. And I remember uh, you guys had a little punch board there oh yeah oh yeah we made a killing on that what we do is we'd have we'd have about 400 spots on this punch board i don't know where we got these things and i'd put a real nice guitar out there and i'd say hey get a chance to win this guitar buy buy a spot on the punch board man those things would go out (laughs) (laughs) those things i wonder if you can even find those things anymore what I don't even think it was legal. I remember asking Neil, is this legal? He said, actually. <laughs> but anyway, we'd put like a $400, $500 guitar out there and make like $1,500 on it, on the punch board. It was, it was actually, it was actually pretty good. You know, I remember somebody who won one of those guitars. Who's that? The great Pete Smith won, he won a guitar down there. He's passed now, I think, or he's in, either he's gone or he's in a nursing home. Uh, the Deputy Pete, the singing sheriff. He won, and it seems like Kenneth Newell won one of those guitars. You know, I'm looking at online. I'm looking at one on eBay right now in perfect condition, never been used for twenty five bucks. What's that? The a punch board, the old yeah we had the old punch. No, we board. had. I don't know. You know, I think there was a certain spot in Carrollton where a man could place a bed. I'm not going to bring that area. <laughs> You know, it was down at the lake. I'm yeah, not I, I know. I, I knew exactly as soon as you said it. I knew. You know, maybe it was sitting there on the lake, and I think a man, if he wanted to place a bet, could go down there and place a rather large, small bet. They could, on they anything. could boogie on down there. They could boogie on down there, and and I believe Neil boogied on down there and bought those boards. I'm pretty sure that's where they came from. Yeah, as you remember, if a man wanted to place a bet, you went to Lake Carroll. But that's all. That's all I'm saying. I never placed. I never placed a bet down there. But I know people who did. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I listen. I was asking you the other night. What was the? And it may not even be that big of a story. I just remember being impressed by it when I was a kid. Do you? What was the firecracker story? It wasn't a firecracker, Brian. And when when I came over from Dallas after my untimely first divorce, when I came over, you know, there's been two. Uh, when I came over from Dallas, Rick and I moved in, uh, Mama Kate's house over on Stripling, not Stripling Chapel Road, Camp Church Road. 
on the way to Bowden, you know, Camp Church, Methodist Church. There was a little house right there. And so Rick and I moved in there with Brian Jobson. And we had a ball. Well, Brian, <laughs> I don't know who he was dating then. But it was pretty plain that after six months of us living together, his girlfriend at the time was sick of our antics. Yeah. And she was sick of us. I'm pretty sure because I mean we weren't a good influence on Brian. I can assure you, <laughs> he probably wasn't a good influence on us. But anyway, somehow Rick and I got a hold of a smoke bomb that you put in somebody's car, and it wasn't a cigarette that lit it up. You 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 put it to the um, I don't know where you put it. Rick knew where to how to hook it up. You hooked it on the timer, or you put it on a spark plug or there was something that was a delay i just remember that it was a delay it was a delay but it was a delay from 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 the car it it was pretty elaborate anyway i don't know how we delayed it but brian and his girlfriend who i hope to god's not listening to this (laughs) we were all so Rick and I are saying okay so long we're standing on the front porch and brian cranks his car up and he backs up and we're thinking, is this thing going to go off? And all of a sudden, you can't even see the car. You can't. It. it they must have packed too much smoke in this smoke bomb because you couldn't see the yard. It completely. It was unbelievable. And so Brian and his girlfriend are both out out on the yard, coughing on their knees. <laughs> <laughs> and they see. And Brian looks up to us. And he sees us laughing. And so he starts laughing because he realized we put a smoke bomb under the hood of his car. But we had no idea. We thought for a minute we caught his car on fire. But his girlfriend was not happy. <laughs> I just I just remember her standing there while we were laughing. And she backed up and said, all three of you are nothing but little children. <laughs> little children who do silly things. <laughs> And we all had this horrible look on our face, looking down at the ground while she'd be right, while she'd be little us for like twenty minutes. She's screaming at how silly and how childish we are, and she just slammed the door and went and got in her own car and left. And we were all looking down at the ground like we've been caught with our hands in the candy jar. And the minute she pulled out of the driveway, well, here we go again, laughing. We're in the yard laughing. <laughs> Brian too. And she broke up with him later. <laughs> How much later? It was like a day later she'd had enough. Oh, really? She finally had enough. That was like a day or two later. Brian came out. Well, she broke up with him. Uh, that's awesome. <laughs> she said, you guys are horrible. We probably were horrible, but he was horrible, too. <laughs> we we just, did, we just did crazy things. Crazy things. So what's some of your best memories from the store? Any stories you got? Any people you met? Yeah, there are a lot of good memories. And, uh you know, just the camaraderie of everybody coming down there and and the musicians. And I really felt like a musician then. You know, I I, I was a, I felt like a musician until about 2010 and when the last gig I did with the Watusi. And, 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 and I guess I, I still felt like one for a while because, you know, I did some acoustic work around Carrollton. But um, those days, I... I mean, it was pretty good to look in a mirror and say, well, you know, I make my living off the music business. And, you know, it's hard to it's hard to make your living off the music sure. business. Sure, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and i got to tell you, people that people that cut that cord, 
and 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 that's all they do is play music or because at that time i was just playing music and i and i was playing in cover bands but it didn't matter i was still playing music and i was selling and i was selling musical instruments and 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 for people that just cut that cord and and all they do because i because i cut the cord once and all i did was play music for like 15 years perfect i mean that's all i did I got to tell you, it takes a certain kind of individual to do that. It takes a, it takes a different type of person to do that. That's a big, that's a big step. When you look in a mirror and, and you look at your friends, you look at your mom and dad, or you look at your girlfriend and look at your wife, and which is hard to do. It's hard to keep relationships and say, you know, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. I'm going to try to play music for a living. And if you're not really good, there's no point trying that good and you and you do what you do well you know you can you can go out there and dig a niche out for yourself because i did it. I, I mean i made a living off the music business for years so uh, i mean I, I didn't get rich but um, but that could have happened too you know if our album had popped we would have been rich but it's just the way it is but it takes i've always had a lot of respect for rick fowler and uh yeah he's still, and Nathan he's does, still doing it He's still doing it, even though he's had, he's he's got some medical problems right now. I'm, I'm not going to talk about, but he's still doing it. I mean, I, I thought I thought Rick was the bravest musician I ever knew, and you know, Russ, his brother, has made a living, probably a better living than all of us put together, being an engineer and producer. He's worked with so many people; it's unbelievable. Stone Temple Pilots. Russ has worked with with from with everybody from Pat Benatar to Peebo Bryson to Stone Temple Pilots to you know, so I mean, he—he's he, another one. So the Fowler brothers are are really brave people. They've—they've—they've they've, they've both, and I know there's other brave people out there. I mean, there's there's a lot of people in Carrollton right now that try to make a living playing music, and you know, my heart goes out to them, especially during this time, because I know there's no gigs out there. So no, there's not. It's there's not, and and just God bless everybody. I I really feel for. I mean, I'm now, you know, I, I have a money source coming in whether i play music or not but it's just, it'd be real tough i mean if i was out there right now you know young man my mid-20s doing what i did but it'd be a tough break you it'd be tough right now I, I, my heart goes out to everybody waitresses musicians hairstylists anybody barbers whatever i i really i really know it's it's tough to make a living when you're just using your own talent to make that living and not working for somebody else. So it's tough right now. So who do you, can you remember who signed the wall, a layer of the wall at ships that we found when we were, uh, we're doing some remodeling in there. Who did? I forgot about that. A drummer. I believe he played with the Don Henley or the Eagles. Oh my God. Oh yeah. Uh, Mike Huey. Oh, not a drummer, a legend. Mike played on so many hit songs. He's a Bowden boy, and he's in that, he's been in California for the last forty years. But yeah, Mike, oh, what a legend! You know, it's not, with- not a lot of like superstars came from Carrollton musicians, but a lot of like working, uh, great resume type of guys. Hey, I got to tell you, Mike's probably at the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, he's worked with Joe Walsh, Elton John, Glenn Fry. You know, he plays drums on the heat of his own, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah, that's, oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's him. Uh, who does You Belong to the City? Is that Don Henley? That's uh, Glenn Fry. 
Is that Glenn Fry? Yeah. Okay, my, that's that's Mike playing on. That's Mike. Wow. Yeah, that's him playing drums on that. He played on a ton of his. I can't. Yeah, you. I, I I can listen to my phone. I've got all these songs, and every ten songs there'll be Mike Huey playing drums. I, Mike's a good friend of mine. I had. We talk. We don't talk much, but we correspond a little bit. And I'm real good friends with his parents, uh, Edna and Johnny. Um, yeah, I think he's he's left the business and he's in the music behind the scenes. Production. I think he's a law. He's. I think he's a lawyer now. Gotcha. Law- I think he's a music lawyer. So that's uh, that's a big leap from musician to musician uh, to. Uh, I think he got tired law. of. Uh, he always told me that life as a session player was a hard life. You know, he was in, you always heard of the wrecking crew. Well, he was part of the last wrecking crew. He worked with everybody out there. Yeah. Worked with Jane. I mean, I, I, I can't even tell you everybody he worked with. It's just a huge list. Well, he's on Wikipedia. So Michael Hughes, you hung it up the story up. in, in 90, uh, seven, eight, 98, 98, 97. You, you went to teach. I went to college, got my teacher certificate. I was still playing with Watusi Rodeo then. That was a hard, I, I had more energy then, I guess. I would teach Monday through Friday and then be on the road playing corporate gigs with Watusi Rodeo Friday through sometimes Sunday. Making the best money you ever made as a musician. Best money I ever made as a musician. That's, we had big numbers. Yeah. We, we, if, if we had made the kind of money with Fort Knox as we did with that, Watusi Rodeo, we would have stayed together. And you probably we, we felt made, more like rock stars in that band than. Uh, well, I mean, uh, you know, we were well, we were one of the best known frat bands in the southeast. Yeah. At at that time, I mean, there was there were we. I, I remember the first gig. It seems like Kevin Lyle was with us on the first. The first gig we played with them at Tuscaloosa, at this huge frat. I, I walked into the bus and nobody was in the frat room, and then I walked back out. And then the place was packed. There's like 500 kids in there. And for the next five years, every gig we played was like that. So you, Every gig was packed. So you did all that while you, you taught, and then... It almost killed me. Then 30, <laughs> 30 years later, someone picks up the Fort Knox record. Rock Candy Records. We'd been trying... People had been calling us years and... What happens was, you know, I'm real lucky. I've worked with four incredible producers. Sonny Limbo, Chris Tangaritas, Ed C., who won a Grammy, and uh, Eddie Offord, who's legendary. And, I, and they're all, I guess Ed's still in the business. I, I, I think all the others, of course, Sonny has passed away. And Chris as well. But, Chris, yeah, Chris. So I'm watching CNN. By the way, after Chris had already worked with Thin Lizzy and worked with Gary Moore, that the great British guitar player, and worked with a lot of bands, Anvil and people like that. But he'd worked with Thin Lizzy. That's that's big stuff in Europe. So after he did our our album, he went back to Europe and became legendary. I guess he's, I guess he was Europe's version of Rick Rubin, like Rick Rubin is here. Is that that guy's name, Rick Rubin? Yeah, yeah. I, I think Chris turned into Rick, the Rick Rubin of Europe. He really did well. Judas Priest, Ozzy Osbourne, even Tom Jones. He's one of those guys who he really got big in Europe. And, and what? Um, 
pretty good guitar player too. Um, I'm watching CNN, and I see go, coming across the bottom of the screen, legendary producer Chris Tangaritas dies in dies in uh, London. Well, the first thing I thought I was saddened because he's it's a major part of my life. Not a long part, but a major part. The second thing I did was call Rick and say, I bet CBS sells our contract. And like a month later, Rock Candy Records from London called Rick and said, we, we're, we're buying your contract from CBS Epic and we're putting your album out. And it, and not only that, they dug up four songs that, honestly, I'd already forgot about that Eddie Offer produced and four of my favorite songs, by the way, uh, and included that on the album and then put like a 16-page booklet about a band in there. It was almost like we, we were a band that sold a gazillion records and this is the greatest hits package, but we didn't sell a gazillion records. But we've never been treated so respectively by a record company we've we've made some money off of it and i mean they 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 did a great job remastering i uh the guy who remastered it i can't think is of his name it's on the album but i think he worked on a couple of u2 albums and stuff like that. he did a great job the album sounds better now than it did on vinyl so uh i'm real pleased with that and and it, and it's like i told uh Nathan and I think I told you, if nothing else, it made our it made all that work valid. It validated Fort Knox. Well, there was a Fort Knox. We were a real band. We went out and toured, and we built a huge cult following that lasted till this day. It's it's unbelievable, and we didn't even know that cult following was out there. And that CD is sold really well. It sold really well. It 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 was selling. It's back on Amazon Choice right now. And every now and then, I think this this coronavirus thing, I think people got bored and started buying stuff on the Amazon. I don't know. Um, also, there there's a, some rec- radio stations started playing Fort Knox, some underground stations. But yeah, I, for um, for a couple of months, it was moving three three hundred albums a month, well, which which is that that's a lot yeah, of CDs. For, yes, exactly. Yeah, absolutely, especially it was moving. From 2016 to about middle of 2017, according to the record company, it was moving about 300 albums a month, 300 CDs. So, I mean, and a lot of that I know is uh, are uh, Chris Tangaritas fans who are picking up, you know, His going catalog. back in and cataloging. Yeah. And, 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 but, you know, and then I hear from a lot of people, I, I've got a... A lot of people from around the United States I'm friends with on Facebook now that that contacted me because of that album, just to let me know how much they loved the album and stuff like that. And and some of them are young; they never had heard the album before. So, so I know you guys I, had a, so it validated us. I mean, it validated. So I know you guys had plans to to reunite and do some shows. We do, and we're still going to. So when are we looking for, I guess, well, before we've got help, we've got some health problems right now and they've got to be addressed. And as soon as those health problems are over, we'll, we'll, and I say we, one of us does. And I, and I had some too, at the beginning of the year, you know, I had a a vertigo problem from a, from a nerve infection. So I'm going to ask you to sign off this episode with, 
the first, the two favorite uh, words I've ever heard you sing before from the top of ship's stairs that everyone always asks you to sing. Can you do that for me? Right now? We'll we'll end the podcast with that. All right. Are you going to ask it or did you just ask it? I did just ask it. (laughs) All right. Here it is. And you know, this was directed at Rob Cash the first time I did it. (laughs) Fuck you. Thank you, Joel. I'll talk to you later. Love you. All right, bye. Love you, man. Bye.